as a functional unit or body, if you will, with all its diversity, begins from the inside out with the purpose of, as the glorified Christ himself states in Acts 1-8, but you will see power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will, shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So with that, let's go to our text. And to just bring you up to speed, though, Dave and Carlton and Aaron have done an excellent job of laying the groundwork uh, for me, and I'm not going to re-preach their sermons, but it does me good to get kind of a running start. So here's kind of where we're at when we get to verse 46. Uh, in Acts 2, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see the birth of the church, and uh, when the Holy Spirit comes on the 120 in the upper room, the miraculous gifts of tongues where uh, the, the people there in Jerusalem there for the Passover are uh, hearing the mighty deeds of God being declared in many different languages. Um, we see the first sermon of Peter, Peter where the power of God saves 3,000 souls and how they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to each other and to the sacraments and to prayer and the awe and power of God that was manifest through the apostles and caring for each other in their physical needs as well, as well as their spiritual needs. Which brings us to our text this morning, which is uh, verse 46 and the first part of 47. And it says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the outline kind of breaks down like this. It says they were day by day continuing with one mind. Remember, this is the infant church, but it is 3,000 plus souls. Okay? Like Aaron expressed in his uh, sermon last week, out of necessity, there, there would have to be, um, that can only be given by God and by, by the Spirit, this connection that their lives would be entwined on a daily basis. And I believe that's what it's speaking of here. And not just once or twice a week as we tend to do in the church today. Uh, they, their homes would have been opened up uh, to these people uh, or to each other, and that's how they would really have to minister to each other, how to take care of each other's needs. And it's unique because they had to depend just exclusively on each other. They were not accepted by the religious establishment. Remember, we're kind of unique in our culture today. When someone comes to Christ, you're not really rejecting yourself or, or, or rejecting your culture as they would have been looked upon. Christianity was looked upon by the, the leaders of Judaism as heresy. They had put to death the prince of life. And so for this new sect that they would call it uh, to, uh, to function, it would have to be interdependent on each other. And I think that's where true Christian community began. And I think that... Uh, uh, we see this, uh, that they were rejected by the religious leaders. You go to chapter 4, you see Peter and John are arrested uh, after um, they uh, healed the man in the uh, temple and, um, and are arrested. And even Stephen in Acts 6 and 7, 
was martyred for the faith by the religious leaders. And even Paul in Acts 21 is accused of bringing Trophimus, a Gentile, into the temple. And uh, so uh, uh, this is why that they would have to, on a daily basis, uh, minister to, to each other. And they're also following the example of the apostles, which are the foundation of the church. We read in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. And remember, the, the apostles had spent three to three and a half years with Jesus, walking this earth, living with him, ministering with him, eating with him, learning from him on a daily basis. And this is the example of, um, uh, that's brought to the early church. They were fishers of men. We're to be fishers of men. And they were taught and molded for a specific task. And they were empowered by the Holy Spirit as we saw in uh, chapter 2, verse 4 of Acts when the Holy Spirit came to them. And we as believers, as extensions of the church down through the ages, we are empowered by that Holy Spirit. Everyone who comes to Christ receives the power that was given to the church on the day of Pentecost. We are given the Holy Spirit to empower us to minister to others as well as each other. But it also says they were of one mind. If you want to, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. And this will be very familiar to you. Um, uh, this is uh, what we refer to as Jesus' high priestly prayer uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in chapter 17 of John, verses 20 through 22, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory <clears throat> which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. Now, when, he's, when Jesus prays that they may be one, he's, in the immediate context, he's speaking of his disciples. Uh, he has told them about he is about to be crucified <clears throat> at the hands of godless men. But he would rise on the third day and they would receive power from on high. And when he prays this, I, I, I believe it's twofold. It's both a positional promise and a practical pattern. Now, Aaron did not put me up to alliterating that. That just came out that way. But <laughs> what do I mean by positional promise? We are all one in Christ by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every believer is one in Christ. Jesus said, those whom the Father has given me, I have lost none of them. He who comes to me, I will raise him up on the last day. That's a, that's a promise. That's secure in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and his power as he intercedes for us. So that is, but it's also a practical pattern. And what do I mean by that? We have to live out that pattern of unity, of oneness on a daily basis. And that unity with each other all only comes through the truth. Uh, we must live out corporately who we are in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 
chapter 4, verse 1, 6. Now, remember, this is many years after Pentecost. That's why I'm saying this is a practical pattern. This, this is what we're to be as uh, the church. He says, therefore, but this verse is 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4. He said, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the unity that we have to live out on a daily basis. He says, live to the calling in which you are called. We were, as we talked about in Ephesians, we were created unto good works. That's who we are in Christ. We have to live that out practically and corporately in our daily lives. And that's what being one in the body on a, on a practical basis is. That's, that's how we live our lives. But unity does not come at the expense of truth. And I'd like to read a quote by Charles Haddon Spurgeon in The Essence of Separation where he says, To remain divided is sinful. Did not our Lord pray that they may be one even as we are one? That's John 17, 22. He says, A chorus of ecumenical voices keep harping the unity team. What they are saying is Christian of, Christians of all doctrinal shades and beliefs must come together in one visible organization regardless, unite, unite. Such teaching is false, reckless, and dangerous. Truth alone must determine our alignments. Truth comes before unity. Unity without truth is hazardous. Our Lord's Prayer in John 17 must be read in its full context. In verse 17, it says, Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Only those sanctified through the word can be in Christ. To teach otherwise is to betray the gospel. So, that's what we mean by being one in mind. It's not at the expense of God's truth. It's not at the expense of the true gospel. Uh, that's why in... Christian unity, we must discipline, we must rebuke and reprove each other. Not for the sake of winning an argument, but to bring others and ourselves in line with the truth of God, which he's revealed in his holy scriptures. But also says they were in the temple. Says they were continuing one mind in the temple. Why, why the temple? Uh, you know, and I've been guilty of it, we tend to look at the temple as something strictly Judaistic, that is strictly um, uh, something that we are to shun. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But when we read the Scriptures, it says in Matthew 21, 13, Jesus says, and he's speaking of the temple, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The temple is God's house because God was there. And so these uh, new believers in the infant church, they could go to the temple with really a, a, a new zeal 
a, um, uh, for the salvation that had come to them, that their eyes had been opened to see Jesus as the Messiah that was promised to them. Remember, the apostles were Jews. The early church was Jews. They had been seeped in Judaism, and they had learned the Old Testament, and now what they had been taught in the Old Testament has been manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what that would have been like? You know, the spirit that made them alive in Christ and empowered them to truly praise and worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was now their God and they were truly his people. So, they would go to the temple for two reasons. One, I think, for prayer. It's interesting that when Peter, on, on the day of Pentecost, it, it, you know, the people, when they began to speak in tongues, they said they were drunk with new wine. He said, uh, men of Judea, these people are not drunk, for it's only the third hour, which by Jewish standard would be 9 o'clock in the morning. There were two prescribed hours of prayer at the temple, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. It's interesting that Peter preaches this First sermon on Pentecost that, in which these 3,000 were saved at that hour of prayer. And they would have every right to go to the temple during those hours and pray. And also, I think they went there to witness. Remembering, uh, if you look back, just if you're in Acts 2, just flip back to Acts 1-8. Jesus says to them, it is... Uh, On verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So they would go to the temple because that's where the people were. And just to give you a little concept of the temple at that time, it was really... a combination of buildings, but the, the, but the name te- main temple itself, you would have had the colonnade, which was a roads of columns. It was right outside the temple. And then inside you would, and the entire facility was considered holy, but it became more holy as you went in. When you first go in, you would have the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were allowed in the temple, but that was right inside was as far as they were allowed to go. Uh, then you would have the court of women. Then you would have the court of Israel, which would have been where lay people would have been. Then you would have the court of the priests. And then you would have the Holy of Holies, where the high priest could enter. And that was only one day a year. So the temple was the hub of activity in Jerusalem. Remember, they're starting at home. That's why I said that, that one, the mark of true Christian community is It starts at home. And I think we can transfer that to our individual homes. I think we we start with our families and we work outward. They started where they lived and they worked outward. So the the temple would have been a, a place where they would have gone to share their faith. And just imagine, we see, I don't know how many people we have here today, say 150 people, imagine 3,000 of one mind going to the temple and sharing the true gospel. We see the results of that 
farther on in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, where the men numbered 5,000. And it was all because they were unified as one body, because they were unified in the one Christ that had saved them and the whole, one Holy Spirit that had empowered them. So, like I said, the, the results uh, are seen... Uh, after Peter's second sermon in Acts 4.4. 4. And, the, and the, there's evidence that the temple was used by Christians as late as Acts 21.26, which would have been decades after the day of Pentecost. It was still a hub of activity where Christians would go and preach the gospel. In fact, that, that passage talks about where Paul is arrested because he's accused of carrying Trophimus into, who is a Greek, into the temple. And... Um, so, uh, the temple was used then. And it says, also, they were breaking bread uh, from home to home. Um, and I, I believe because of uh, what it says up in um, verse 42, it says, well, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I believe this is speaking about communion. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, 25, 26, um, uh, Paul says, and when, speaking of Christ, he says, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus does not prescribe a certain amount of times. He doesn't even prescribe certain days. He just says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. How wonderful it would have been for these, new, these believers, this infant church, to share in each other's home the communion celebrating the death and resurrection of their, of, of their Lord on a daily basis. I've really been, as the other pastors have, have really said too, really been convicted in studying this that I've never shared that in my own home. I know some of you have. But I believe that's a wonderful thing. To have communion in your home. We're, we're going to corporately take communion uh, at the end of the service. But how wonderful to do that in your home. To show that example to your children. What you, what you believe and, and, and what it means to, to, uh, to, to celebrate uh, as we should, like I said, daily, what Christ has done for us. And it always remains fresh. That's one thing that, that strikes me is when these infant saints were doing this daily, it remained fresh to them. Do we tend to get stagnant over time? Because uh, we, we do this, you know, we have family devotions once a week. I know a lot of you have them you know, once uh, every night, and that's great because I think that keeps that freshness there. But, uh, <clears throat> and it says, they were taking, also taking their meals together. Um, and it says, from house to house. And um, as Aaron said, this would have been out of necessity. Um, uh, and I read one note where um, one 
guy said that, and this is something I think we tend to read what we experience now back into history. He says, for the first few couple of hundred years of its, exist of its existence, the Church of Jesus Christ met almost exclusively in the private homes as opposed to large buildings specially designed for religious services. There was no cathedrals. There were no uh, church buildings. They would have had to meet in, in the homes. And like I said, sharing their meals together. Remember, they were, they were selling the property and dividing it to those who were on need, in need. Remember, to become a Christian in a Judaistic society is to totally reject your heritage. Um, we're the, like I said, we're the exception in America. We're not, it's not looked at that way in our countries, but in other countries it is. Uh, I know uh, Jyothi can probably testify in India. When you become a Christian in India, you not only reject the religions, be it Hinduism or whatever, you reject the very culture because the culture and the religion are so intertwined together. So, uh, meeting from home to home and sharing their meals would have been out of necessity uh, because of the time. And it also would exhibit the hospitality that, you know, we're to exhibit um, as Christians. You know, we should always open our homes to other believers. We should always seek for that fellowship with other believers to share a meal and, and to, uh, to share our concerns with each other and just be involved in each other's lives. And that's part of, you know, that's... That's not all of it, but that's a large part of what being a community is all about, that common unity. So, um, anyway, the next point would, uh, is that uh, they did it with gladness and sincerity of heart. You know, my children can attest that obedience without the proper attitude is hypocrisy. So... The attitude precedes the act. And it says they did this with gladness and sincerity of heart. And that's why I said that true Christian community starts, it begins in the home and in the heart. You cannot be part of a Christian community apart from being changed from the inside out. You can fit in personality-wise. You can wing it for lack of a better word, but you're not, you're not going to be able to tolerate someone with a truly changed heart very long if your heart's not changed yourself. It will become offensive to you, and you will, you will look for others who are like-minded but not like-changed. So, and it says, uh, uh, with gladness... And the noun form of that Greek word means to rejoice. Matthew 5, 12, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We have, we as Christians have an infinite number of things that we can rejoice about. We should live our lives rejoicing. That, that should be the mantra of our walk every day when we get up. 
the grace of God that is bestowed on us that we draw another breath and we live to serve him another day is cause for rejoicing. And it also said sincerity of heart. And it's interesting that that word aphelitos is derived from, and it's, it's a noun form, but it's from a root meaning smooth or free from rocks. It says there's, there's no restraint there. There's no encumbrances there. There's no selfishness there. And it, 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 what's the interesting thing when I read that that word literally means free from rocks, what does God do in the new covenant? He takes out our heart of what? Our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. That, uh, that is the, the heart and that is the, the way that we should uh, serve God and, and serve each other. So true Christian community starts on the inside. They were obedient because they had been changed. And all these things resulted from a new heart. It says in verse, verse 47, the first part of it says, Praising God and having favor with all people. Praising God. To praise God is to acknowledge all that he is and all that he does and has done. True joy can only come through glorifying God, the God that works through us. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, through, though, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Here's what he su su uh, summarizes it with. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Having an... Having favor with all the people was a direct result of their praising God. It was God that gave him that favor. Uh, Aaron read a note, I think, last in his sermon last week on, by Aristides about the report of the conduct of Christians. 
what they did and who they were in Christ is what granted them favor. In John 13, 35, it says, By this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And when I read this, uh, it made me think of Daniel. Because if you live like this, even your enemies will have a hard time making accusations against you. If you live like this, if, if people see unity in the body rooted in truth, it will be hard for them to find an accusation for um, uh, saying we're not genuine, uh, saying this is like all other religions because it's not. And it makes me think of Daniel in the Old Testament. In, in Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, it says, Then the commissioners and satraps, and this is prelude to, prelude to him being cast in the lion's den. Uh, not to say people will not make accusations, but they won't be able to make true accusations. It says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption insomuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. They're not talking about his spiritual life here. They're talking about his conduct in his workplace, his conduct in the government of which he was very high up. That's far, that's, that's far from what we find in governments nowadays. Usually the higher up it goes, the corruption gets worse but this is what they said then these men said we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God we're to all be like Daniel and the early church was a community of Daniels they were of one mind one faith United under one Christ, empowered by one Spirit. And I'd like to conclude with ten characteristics, ten characteristics of true community, true Christian community. These are in no particular order, and you may agree with some of them, you may disagree with some of them. But true community takes no breaks. We're to walk daily with each other. True community finds unity in our diversity. Different gifts, one body. And I can't take credit for this quote. Ravi Zacharias said, we look for unity in diversity. He said, but you cannot find unity and diversity and community here without it being uh, expressed in the Trinity. We have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit one God, three persons. And though we're very different in many ways, we're very alike in our unity with Christ. True community is not selfish. It's not about you. It's about others. True community shares the true and full gospel. Paul says in Acts 20, 27, when he's leaving Ephesus, he said, I, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the full counsel of God. We're not to hold back the gospel. We're not to water it down to make people feel comfortable. 
we're to present the full and true gospel of Jesus Christ, for that is the power unto salvation. True community works from the center outward. They were to start in Jerusalem at home and work outward. We should start in our homes and work outward. Parents, we raise godly children. They go out. We, we, we minister to godly friends. It goes outward. That's how the church grew here. That's the same pattern for today. True community interacts on the basic levels of relationships. Meals, phone calls, emails. Just being in contact with the body. Being concerned for others. Being sensitive to their needs. Being sensitive to their hurts. True community always is always Christ-centered. It's for his glory that we do this. It is because of what he's done for us. Uh, we are his body. That's why we should do these things. And, it is, and true community is the result of a changed heart. And true community glorifies God, and that's our ultimate purpose. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy it forever. And finally, God uses true Christian community to build his church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we have...